0: Good morning, it is good to see you here, and like Zach said, I do indeed have a thing. Uh, So, that doesn't mean this is going to be shorter, so don't get get your hopes up. But it does mean we're switching the order up a little bit. Thank you for being here. For those of you that are uh, sending off high school or middle school students, thank you for entrusting your students with us. We're going to bring them up and pray for them in a bit. But before that, can I have you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, please? Uh, last week, we were with Christ in the garden and we saw uh, really the humanity of the Son on display. Jesus never ceases to be fully God. He never ceases to be fully man. Those natures combined into one unique God-man. But there in the garden of Gethsemane, we see Christ uh, face the cup that is coming. As he is in that garden, as he is praying, as he is in agony, anticipating what's to come, he's not grieving over the betrayal of Judas, although there is grief to that. He's not grieving over the coming of the Roman cohort and the soldiers from the temple, although he knows that is coming. He is grieving the fact that he looks into the cup that the Father has given him to drink, and he knows exactly what's coming. Uh, Physical pain, you and I can relate to. Even spiritual distress, you and I can relate to. But none of us can relate to what Christ was going to face. Because the wages of sin is death. That has been a universal reality since mankind was formed and since God planted Adam and Eve in that garden in the beginning. The cost for sin is death. And the reality is that someone will pay for sin. Either the sinner through eternity separated from God or Jesus Christ. And that is what he bore on the cross. The wrath of God poured out against sin that was not his. And so as he looks at all that he knows is coming, including the discipline that the Father will bring towards sin that will satisfy for all eternity, He's distressed. He's grieved. And in His humanity, He cries out to the Father, is there any way? If there is another way, let this cup pass from Me, but there is no other way. And so in a picture of perfect humility and perfect obedience, He says, not My will, but Your will be done. And in such a striking contrast to that we see the disciples asleep unable to keep watch for even an hour even as the perfect lamb is being faithful even to the end and as that scene came to a close we saw Jesus go back out for a third time and wake up his sleeping disciples and he told them it's enough the time has come let's get up and let's be going because the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners but what will that look like well that's what we cover today So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 26. And our text today is going to be verses 47 to 56, and I'll read the first few verses to set the stage where we'll be. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47, this is what God's Word says. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word, and it's a familiar passage. Many of these are. As we build up toward the cross of Christ, we know the story. but It's more than a story, Lord. It's history, and more than history, it's the story of redemption that the God of all creation would call a ruined and sinful people to himself. So, Lord, help us to see rightly. Open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We don't naturally come to this with understanding. We don't bring our own intellect, our own education. Lord, we're dependent on you to show us the truth, and then we need your spirit to help us respond to that truth, to live in truth and to walk in truth. So, Lord, will you help us do all these things today? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, True crime shows are always popular. My dad was a a sheriff's deputy for about 30 years, and uh, we grew up watching Cops because it was fun and it was on. And there's that fascination with what people will try to do to break the law. And there's books and articles and websites dedicated to stories of bizarre crime and how these arrests happen. And sometimes it's very, very outlandish, and sometimes it involves the poorest, and sometimes it involves the most powerful people. If you've been paying attention to the news over the last couple of weeks, Uh, You've seen Senate hearings, and you've seen arrests on the Capitol, and uh, it's interesting to see what happens when people are confronted with the idea of being taken into custody. Because the response is usually pretty universal, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're powerful, or whether you're an absolute nobody, uh, most people want to avoid that most people resist to whatever degree they're available Uh, some people resist through physical violence some people run and hide some people flee the country some people just hire the most expensive lawyer that they can afford but everybody pushes back to some degree and by now in Matthew's gospel we should be used to the fact that when it comes to Jesus Christ everything is radically different but even so as we come to this scene of his betrayal and arrest it's striking how differently he approaches what's coming because how can the man how can the one who can calm the storm with a word be taken into custody? How can the king of kings allow himself to be ruled over by sinful men? How can the Son of God ever be arrested by just men? And yet that's what we see here. And once again we get a glimpse of the nature and the humility of Jesus Christ, but There's more than that. And the first thing that we're going to see here is the scandal as it plays out. Again, we become so familiar with this sometimes that it doesn't shock us like it should. This is a scandalous scene. And verse 47 opens with quite a crowd. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Remember, as we closed last week, Jesus is waking his disciples up. He's saying that's enough. The time for rest is over. The time for prayer is over. The time for preparation is over. The Son of Man is being betrayed, so let us get up and be going. Not going away, not sneaking out the back of the garden in the darkness, but moving directly toward Judas and those who were coming to confront him. And then we read that Judas came, one of the twelve, and we want to keep reading. But we have to stop there for a minute, because by this point in Matthew's Gospel, we know who Judas is, don't we? we've been given a list of all of the disciples. And by this point, we know that Judas is one of the 12. And if the, if the writers of the Gospels don't waste words, then why in the world would Matthew put that in there? Again, that Judas is one of the 12. And I think it's there because it is meant to shock us. Every time we see that, this betrayal is supposed to stab at us a little bit. There is something deeply uncomfortable about this. This is not Caesar who comes for Jesus. This is not Pilate who comes for Jesus. This is not even ultimately the religious leaders who coordinate and orchestrate this. Absolutely, they are all involved. But when you get right down to it, the one who would hand him over is Judas, one of the 12. If anyone should have known who this was, it was him. If anyone should have had a great and full picture of what Christ was about, about what he taught, about what he was able to do, it absolutely should have been him. But he missed it. But it's not just Judas. He brings that crowd. Not a few. It says a great crowd. And this crowd is ready for trouble. They come with swords. They come with clubs. Other gospel accounts tell us they come with lanterns and torches. They're assuming that there's going to be some resistance. Remember, they are looking to avoid conflict. But Judas knows that he's going to be with 11 other disciples. And 11 men who are motivated enough can still cause quite an uproar. And so they bring everything necessary to maintain control of this situation. Matthew also tells us that the crowd is from the chief priests and the elders of the people. John's gospel tells us that there were soldiers as well. So we see this group uh, of the religious leaders and the political power working together at this point. There have been negotiations or plans between the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders, and Pilate to get this group together. And this is likely, uh, and again, it kind of escapes our mind sometimes, this is likely hundreds of people. On this hillside, where there was quiet, in this time where there was prayer and solitude, now you have hundreds of people coming to arrest Jesus. And as he comes near, he gives them a sign that has become the universal betrayer, uh, the symbol of betrayal, and that is the kiss. You see the betrayer's kiss. If you look at verse forty-eight, now the betrayer—not even Judas—now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, "The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him." Remember, this is happening in the middle of the night. They don't all have devices on them with Jesus' picture displayed. This is happening in the darkness, and even in the full moon, there's a chance that you get a mistaken identity. If there's a scuffle, if 11 people start running and there's a crowd trying to surround them, there's a chance that you get the wrong guy. Judas thinks that he needs to make sure that he gets the right guy. Everything about this scene says that Judas and the religious leaders understand that they need to maintain control of what is happening. So, Judas says, Watch me. I'm going to get close enough to him that I can identify him. And the one that I kiss, that's the man. Seize him, hold on to him, and don't let him go. And again, I don't think we're as shocked as we should be because we're so familiar with it by the closeness of this. Judas does not identify Christ from the outskirts and from the shadows. There's no anonymous tip that leads them to Christ. This is an intimate, close act not just physically close but there's a relational intimacy here if you read through the New Testament over and over and over it says greet one another with a holy kiss now that's a little bit foreign to us in our culture if we decided to start instituting every fifth Sunday as holy kiss Sunday I think we would (laughs) diminish attendance probably but in the ancient Near East and even in many Eastern cultures now uh, the kiss is a sign of familiarity it's a sign of friendship it's a sign of trust if you're going to be close enough to kiss someone Uh, There's a degree of vulnerability there, of openness. Uh, And that's exactly what it was meant to convey. And he comes right up to the Messiah and he kisses him. He takes that sign that should have been one of friendship and kinship and he turns it into a gesture of betrayal. And verse 29 says, he came up to Jesus at once. There's no hesitation, no second thoughts. He says, greetings or hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the implication in the word that's used here is he did it repeatedly. Judas has grabbed hold of Christ, and he's not going to let go. He's going to make sure that they understand that this is the one that they're looking for. But there's really no need to wonder at this point whether Jesus is going to try and run or try and hide or try to blend in. We've seen Jesus in the garden. We've been kind of privy to that intimate prayer, and we know that he is resolved to do the will of the Father But in his mind, again, Judas assumes that he is the one directing these events. He assumes that he has to maintain control. He has to assume that if they seize him, that they can hold him fast. They need soldiers. They need guards. They need weapons to make sure that if anything gets out of hand, they have the ability to control and contain the situation. Uh, But we know that Jesus won't flee. And so he responds, Friend, do what you came to do. He knows why he's come. He's not surprised. Jesus has not been spending the last couple of hours looking around going, where's Judas? He knows that he's not there and he knows what he went to do and he knows what he's come to do. And so he simply says, do what it is you've come to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The Son of God allows sinful men to take him into custody. Now, there's obviously a lot about this situation that Judas doesn't understand. But as we look further, we understand that there's a lot that the disciples themselves don't understand. If you've ever nodded off in class, not that I have, or if you've ever maybe let your mind drift in an important meeting, you know that uh, shocking, sinking feeling when somebody asks you a question and you have to wake up, uh, focus, and come up with something reasonably intelligent to say in a moment of stress. Uh, Jesus has jostled his disciples awake. They are now surrounded by hundreds of people. Judas has come up and kissed them, and now they're forced to respond. They have to make a decision on how they are going to react to this situation. And in uh, their limited understanding, in their lack of understanding, the best thing that they can come up with is to use the sword. And so as we open verse 51, we start to see the response of the disciples. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we have to see, aside from getting into the, well, that would be really interesting to watch. uh, More than that, we have to see the parallel here. Judas brings a number of people with all of the physical tools necessary to either subdue the disciples or to intimidate them into not having a fight. Judas is approaching this like a man who has to keep control of the situation. And the disciples are doing the exact same thing. People that have the ability to push back against arrest typically do. And the disciples are thinking right along those same lines. If we were to read Luke 22, which is the parallel account to this. In Luke 22, uh, he says, When those who were around Jesus saw what would follow... They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? As the disciples wake up and as they get a glimpse of what's happening around them, they say, Jesus, do you want us to at least try and do something about this? Because this can't be the plan. This cannot be right. This cannot be the way things are supposed to go. They know that if this crowd gets a hold of Jesus, nothing good happens. They know what he's claimed to be. They know what they think of Jesus. They know what Jesus thinks of them. And if he goes into custody, things are not going to go well. I want you to turn with me really quickly to John's Gospel he gives us a little bit more detail John chapter 18 if you would and John 18 picks up right where we were in Matthew I'm gonna start reading in verse 2 John 18 verse 2 now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples so Judas having procured a, brand, a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, "Whom do you seek?" And they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus said, "I am He." Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, "I am He," they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked again, "Whom do you seek?" They said, "Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus answered, "I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go." That uh, Lots that we could get into there. The fact that when Jesus says, I am, that they all draw back and fall to the ground. At that point, you would think that they would have second thoughts, but uh, apparently not. But it's striking that John's gospel shows us that it's not Judas that's driving the identification. It's Jesus. Judas comes up and he kisses him. Judas has his sign. But Jesus says, who are you seeking? Jesus makes it clear that he is the one that they are seeking. And even more than that, that he's not there to see his disciples get taken into custody. Look at verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. Even the fact that he identifies himself to the exclusion of his disciples fulfills prophecy. And we ought to be reminded that there is no part of this, no little piece, no little detail that falls outside of God's sovereign control. Something that we'll look at again later. Now look at verse 10. It says, Then Simon Peter Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So, as you flip back to Matthew's gospel, we've been given a little bit more uh, detail and a little bit more insight here, and we learn a couple of things. First of all, that Peter was the one with the sword, and second of all, that the servant had a name and it was Malchus. And We shouldn't be surprised by that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's not a surprise that people would be armed, especially if you're traveling a great distance, like to Jerusalem, like for an appointed feast or festival. Uh, The roads can be a dangerous place. There are robbers. People get set upon by these bands of thieves, even as they travel in groups, so they would have weapons with them. So that's not surprising. And I think uh, between you and I and all of us who have been through Matthew's gospel, we could probably say if someone in that group was going to have a sword, it's probably going to be Peter. And if someone in that group felt the need to use the sword, even while everybody was asking about Jesus, should we use the sword, again, it's probably going to be Peter. And we can probably guess also that the ear is not the intended target. Peter's not looking to make a statement. He was looking to do damage here, and whether this is the fact that he is a fisherman and not a sword fighter, or much more likely the fact that it is dark and they are close. So he couldn't do exactly what he intended to do. He strikes out the result is the same. It takes off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And there's our parallel. The crowd comes ready for a fight. The disciples wake up and they prove that they're also ready for a fight. And everyone in this whole situation has this natural understanding that if someone is going to carry the day, it's going to be through violence and intimidation. And into this charged situation, Jesus reminds them of the reality of what is actually happening here. Look at verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, that is not the way this is going to go. There is a rebuke here. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter, violent men come to violent ends. Now, this is not a command to sit idly by while people suffer. That's not what he's saying. This is not a command that you are not to defend the weak and the helpless. That is not what he is saying. This is not a command that says there is never a time to war. God had called his people into times of conflict before. But remember, this isn't a war that is going to be won with swords. It can't be. This is a war against sin and death and the slavery that men find themselves under from the time that they're born and a sword is never going to win that war. And more than that, we're reminded that Jesus is not a victim in this situation. Peter, put your sword away. It makes no sense. To live violently would be to die violently. I mean, practically that makes sense. If Peter and the disciples fight back against hundreds of men, they lose their lives right there. And, and rightfully so. To resist the rest against the authorities would have meant that they were justifiably uh, killed for their actions. But more than that... You defend the weak. You defend the defenseless. And Jesus isn't defenseless. Look at what he says in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you still not understand who I am? With a word, I could have tens of thousands of angels here. And by the way, another reminder that that temptation that He's facing in the garden is absolutely real the opportunity to do away with this suffering is absolutely real. The ability to call on a power that would remove Jesus from this situation is absolutely real. Depending on what source you use, a Roman legion was about 6,000 men So math that is not simple to me, but I'm sure is simple to many of you, that's roughly 72,000 angels here. And it's not about the number, it's about the fact that Peter, don't you know that I could summon as many angels as I needed? And by the way, if you look in your Old Testament in places like 2 Kings 19, where an angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrians, one would have done it. (laughs) Peter, don't you understand that with a word, I could summon a power that these people cannot even imagine. Peter, don't you understand that for one moment of this, I have not been out of control? And more than that, not only is Jesus in control, but this is all going exactly according to plan. Verse 54, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter, you're proving that not only you don't understand your place in this, you're showing that you don't really understand what I've been telling you for months. The Messiah is going to come in power and glory. That is true. The Messiah is going to come and rule on the throne of David over the nations. That is true. But, Peter, it's also written the Messiah is going to suffer and die for his people. Peter, don't you understand? As you draw that sword, you're not actually standing against the plans of Judas. You're not actually standing against the plans of the scribes and the Pharisees. You're not actually striking out against the servant of the high priest. Peter, don't you understand that as you try to overcome what's happening, you're actually standing against the written, promised word of God. So Judas comes with the crowd assuming that that's how He's going to keep control. The disciples respond with a sword, understanding that that's the only hope they have, to have any kind of control. And now Jesus is going to point them all back to the Scriptures. The idea that the things that are unraveling this night or unraveling from the disciples' perspective are actually tying together prophetic threads that have been written for hundreds of years. That on this night, for all its intrigue and all its conflict the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. And the first thing in this last section that we're going to look at is the fear, because these last few verses on the part of everyone but Christ are governed by fear. Not only on the part of the religious leaders, but the part of the disciples as well. Look at verse 55. At that hour, so at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, "Have you come out against as a have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs?" to capture me. So he's not just talking to his disciples. Now he's talking to the crowds that have come to arrest them. And he's basically saying, why did you come this way? This is how you would come out against a robber. This is how you would come against a thief. This is how you would come against a man of violence. This is what you would do if you were coming against someone that you saw as a physical threat. And by the way, they knew what that looked like. As Jesus is saying this, there is a man sitting in prison named Barabbas who had committed murder during an insurrection. They know what an insurrectionist and a rebel and a violent man looks like. And Jesus says, what are you doing that is not me? What has he been doing? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You had every opportunity to come. You knew where I was, and you knew what I was doing, but you didn't dare do this in the light of day. Why? Because they're scared. Because they're fearful. Because they're afraid of the crowds. Because they're afraid of a riot. Because they're afraid that if things go crazy, the Romans simply come in and take their lives and their position and their authority. See, for all their talk of blasphemy, for all of their high talk about how Jesus is defaming the God that they serve, their convictions aren't actually strong enough to stand up to the light of day. They're cowards who are going to take their action under the cover of darkness. But Jesus knows. And he says all of this has taken place so that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. We'll come back to that in a moment. But this section closes with more fear, not on the part of the crowds or the religious leaders, but on the part of the disciples. Look at the last phrase there. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus, we will stay with you even to the death. That wasn't so many hours ago that they said that. Jesus, even if we have to die with you, we'll stay with you. It wasn't so long ago that they said that. Now they've shown that they're likely willing to fight, maybe even to die with the sword standing next to Christ. But when the call is simply to willingly suffer with him, when the call is to humbly submit to the will of God no matter where that leads, well, fear takes over and they flee into the darkness. And those words of Jesus echo in our mind: "Truly, I tell you, you will all fall away because of me this night." And once again, he's proven right. For all their talk, all their bravado, all of their promises, Jesus is left alone. But we're going to be reminded time and time again that everything is hap- Everything that's happening is not only under control but it's all a fulfillment of what God said would happen. They thought the garden was their idea. Judas thought the kiss was his idea. Even in the moment, the disciples running away think that that's the best idea that they have. But Jesus says all of this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What Scriptures have been fulfilled? Just a few for you. Psalm 41, verse 9. David writes, even my close friend in whom I trusted, the one who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Places like Zechariah 11, it talks about betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 13 that we looked at last week, that says when Yahweh strikes the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So you see that in this moment, even those fleeing, fading footsteps of the disciples as they scamper off into the darkness are actually fulfilling what God said would happen hundreds of years before they breathe their first breath and the coming chapters are going to be full of prophetic fulfillment the stripes of the servant who will heal his people from Isaiah 53 the agony of Christ on the cross from Psalm 22 the cry out to his father the idea that not a bone would be broken the promise that the Holy One would not undergo decay, all of these things, all we are going to see is that God knows. If you are in the position and the perspective of the disciples in that garden, in fact, from every human perspective, it looks like the wheels have come off of this thing. Somehow, from that triumphal entry on Sunday to the middle of the night in a garden, something has gone terribly wrong if there was ever any sense of control, you look at this scene and you say, surely it's been lost at some point. But Scripture reminds us that Christ is in control, that God is sovereign, and that everything is going exactly according to plan. That God in His power even uses the wickedness of the hearts of men to accomplish His good purposes. As we close, we're reminded that there's control in the chaos. Because we have to ask ourselves, why does this matter? Uh, Other than uh, a remarkable scene in the middle of a remarkable narrative, why does this matter? Once again, it it displays the humility and the obedience of Christ. That the Son of God, the King of Kings, would submit himself to sinful humans is a remarkable testament to his humility, his obedience. And that would be enough. That would be more than enough. As Christians, we're called to be like Christ. That is the highest goal of the life of a believer. Not to live a good life, not to live a happy life, to be like Christ. After all, that is what the plan of God is moving us toward, is to be made and conformed to the image of the Son. That's our highest goal. And if our highest goal is to be like Christ, and if Christ is humble and obedient, then we could probably sit and chew on that for, I don't know, the next week or lifetime, and not run out of things to think through. But there's some pointed reminders in here that even move beyond that. How about the reminder that when the world seems chaotic that there is no part of it that is functioning outside of God's sovereign control not for one minute in the middle of great pain in the middle of great injustice God does not sit in heaven wringing his hands wondering where it all went wrong he's not up in heaven pacing wondering how he is going to bring something good out of this He moves all things according to his plan. He never ceases to be the one in perfect control. Even Jesus displays that in the middle of this. Matthew's Gospel doesn't tell us about it, but most of us know the story. Peter hacks off the ear, and what does Jesus do? He puts it back together again. Even in the middle of the darkness and the chaos of the arrest and Peter striking out, Jesus simply continues being Jesus. Powerful enough to restore physically obedient enough to speak peace to his disciples who should have known better, demonstrates in every way that he is exactly who he came to be, the Messiah, the Son, the Savior, and the Sovereign King. So here's two things for us to think about this week as we go. First of all, we need to think about how we respond to chaos. I mean, at one point or another, all of our lives seem at least a little bit out of control. We don't like that we all like to assume that our lives have some kind of an order no matter how messy our room is and some of us are not as neat as others we all like to think that we can control the bits and the pieces of our lives even my chaos has my sense of order and predictability to it but it doesn't take much to upset that does it one harsh word from a friend one bad quarter at the office One doctor visit that you weren't quite expecting. And suddenly your tidy, orderly world is flipped on its head. So how do we respond? This can't be the plan. This can't be good. This can't be what God intended for me. It is very, very easy for us to come and sing about the love and the power and the sovereignty of God on Sunday and then go out on Monday and believe every lie that the devil throws at us that says that he somehow is either not in control or doesn't have our best interests at heart. What's the cure for that? You know, the cure is not a better, more stable job. You know, the cure is not in finding relationships where people will treat you the way you deserve to be treated. The cure is not in isolating yourself from the world and pulling away so that you can experience some kind of stability the cure for this is not in anything temporal anything temporary anything earthly at all the cure for that is truth we don't like that because as it turns out I'm not in control of the truth I want something I can put my hand on and direct No, the way that you live victoriously, triumphantly, confidently, joyfully in the midst of chaos is by being grounded into the bedrock of truth. Truth that says, this is who I know God to be. This is who I know I am in God. And this is what I know that He has promised. Because if He is all-powerful, like I seem to think about on Sunday then that means He's powerful in control of this situation. If He is sovereign, then that means that He could determine any other outcome, and yet this is the one that He has chosen for me. And if His highest goal for me is to be made like Him, if He will complete the good work that He started, if I have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son like Paul writes in Romans 8, then everything that happens must be pushing me toward that end. And if that is the end, and it is a good and glorious end, then it changes how I think, even in the middle of what I would define as chaos. Now, you live a life like that, even when life is falling apart, and all of a sudden you find that you have something very, very important and very, very timely to speak to the world around you, to speak to one another. Second, we need to think about how we submit to hardship. How do we respond to the difficult directions that Jesus gives? The disciples said that they would die for him, and Peter was on his way. (laughs) But what was the command? Not like that. Not right now. What would it have meant for them to be obedient to Christ in that moment? For them to mean to be faithful? Well, likely would have meant them following him into arrest quietly led along with the crowd. We know that didn't happen. See, we want to say that we're willing to die for our faith. And you know what? I I tend to believe that. In the moment, we're willing to link arms and sing onward Christian soldiers and go fight against the enemies of God with all the strength that he provides. What happens when the will of God isn't to fight but to submit? What happens when the call in the Christian life isn't to resist but to be characterized by humble obedience. I am not saying that believers do not stand up against injustice. That would be counterbiblical in every sense of the word. But if the last couple of years have shown me anything, I think it's that we are far more quick to zealously defend our rights than we are to turn the other cheek. Let's make it more personal maybe. What if the call of God on my life is not to experience consistent financial security? Not because I'm financially irresponsible, but simply because that is this, the path that He has laid out for me. What if the call of God on my life is not to experience good health? What if the call of God on my life is not to experience an abundance of good, stable relationships? do I wonder if God got it wrong? When the chaos isn't out there, but when the chaos is in here, and when the call of God is to move through that without a solution, or at least what I would think would be a solution in sight, how do I respond? See, sometimes God will call us to submit to hardship. Do we know enough about him to understand that even that is for our good? That doesn't sell, by the way. But it never has. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. How often do I say, I'll follow you to the kingdom, but I don't want any part of the cross? Let's pray. Lord, we want ease. We want comfort. And in your grace and in your goodness, you provide us good things. Lord, you've given us a world full of things that are beautiful and lovely and encouraging. But Lord, we know that sin and we live in a fallen world brings us to places of pain and hardship, suffering, suffering. And much of that is in unjust, unfair from our perspective. Lord remind us of who you are. You are the sovereign God of all creation who ordains and directs every step of our life, and we are never, not for one moment, outside of your loving control. Lord remind us, through the humility and obedience of Christ, that even in the darkest night, even in the most unjust human circumstances, you're working. And you've told us what you're doing. You've told us that you do these things for our eternal good, that even momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory. So God, help us to be a people who are confident, not who seek out pain, not who enjoy discomfort, but Lord, a people that are calm, steady, steadfast in the middle of chaos, and joyful even in the midst of strife and hardship and suffering. God, let us be a body that points each other toward the truth of your word. Not pats on the head that promise it will all get better. But strong arms that bear one another's burdens and move us toward the goal of being more like Jesus Christ. God, we desperately need your help for that. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen.